Escaped sapiens. Why do men die younger? Why is there no male oral contraceptive? Why do men commit suicide more often? Are sperm counts and male fertility really dropping? How many men are taking supplements, injections, and undergoing surgery to build muscle, regrow hair, and augment their bodies to achieve idealized forms of masculine perfection? In a research landscape where there are countless brilliant initiatives, conferences, and journals dedicated to female reproductive health, what is the male analog of gynecology? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Renee Ameling, who's a professor of sociology at Yale University. We discuss the gaps that exist in medical research, the social conception of gender that led to this point, and the implications of this lack of knowledge, not only on men, but also on their partners and children. I hope you enjoy. Renee, welcome on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been interested in men's health for some time, you know, from mental health and suicide rates to the lower life expectancy that men face to body issues such as steroid use. And I guess recently there have been reports that there's dropping sperm counts and infertility issues. And, you know, these are all big topics, big uh, important things. But in our public discourse, we don't really talk about these issues so much. And the thing that really caught my attention with your work is your focusing on sort of the attention to these issues in research. And, and so let me first start by just asking you, to what extent is there a gap that exists in, in male health research generally, and I suppose reproductive health specifically? I know it's a big question, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's okay for you to ask me a big question, because I just spent about six years writing a book <laughs> trying to answer that exact question. Um, so I have been doing research, I'm a sociologist um, at Yale, and I've been doing research on gender and medicine for about 20 years now. So I started graduate school in 2001. So this is my 20 year 20 year anniversary of, of beginning some of these projects. And the thing that has really sort of captured my attention for the last six or seven years is, um, you know, noticing in this field of reproductive health just how much, you know, research, um, how many professional medical associations, how many conferences, textbooks, um, you name it, are really devoted to women's reproductive health. And I think that intuitively makes sense to a lot of people. Um, but it does, you know, once you start thinking about, well, it's not just, you know, one person who uh, reproduces, it's, you know, often two people. And, you know, there's other combinations, we could get into that. But, um, you know, that often men are involved in some way, to some extent in reproduction. And yet, there is very little knowledge of how men's own bodily health matters for reproduction. Um, in the world of infertility, there's relatively little attention to male infertility. Uh, you could look at contraception, you know, there's more than a dozen different kinds of contraception that women can use. And yet men have only two options, which are condoms and vasectomy. Those are the same two options they've had for the past century. Um, so, you know, no matter kind of where you look at in the world of, of reproductive health, there's really much more focus, attention, knowledge making around women's bodies than there are around men's. Um, and I came to be interested in the why, the why, you know, how did we get here? Um, and so I ended up kind of diving into this history of medicine rabbit hole and finding myself in the late 19th century and, you know, thinking about medical specialization. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sort of ways that I could answer the question of how did we get here? But that, you know, that would be, um, that would be a, a longer answer. But yeah, I think that it is absolutely correct to say that there has been inattention to men's reproductive health. And I think that has all kinds of ramifications for um, healthcare and public policy and uh, biological knowledge about bodies. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm kind of curious about is, so when you're researching this, how do you tease apart when something's hasn't been done because it's difficult as opposed to people aren't interested. So for example, what you mentioned, um, you know, the male pill, for example, like an oral contraceptive, like how, is it, is that a situation where it's just harder to make, or is it a situation where socially we don't think of, of that as a viable option? How do you tease this apart? It's a good question. Um, and 
I will say that it's very rarely the case in sociology or history that it's just one answer. <laughs> so I think, you know, rather than saying, oh, is it one or the other? Most of the time I find myself using ands instead of ors, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think both that uh, male contraceptive, uh, the male contraceptive pill is sort of more difficult socially and conceptually to think about in part because we've so long associated women's bodies with reproduction and contraception. Um, and it's the case that people have been working on a male contraceptive pill since the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, if you had talked to a physician scientist in 1955, he would have said it's 10 years out. If you would have talked to somebody in 1965, it's 10 years out, right? Like we've been 10 years out from a male contraceptive pill for uh, 60 or 70 years. And so it's, you know, part of it is the um, kind of technological aspects of what does it mean to stop sperm production um, temporarily? And how do you then make sure that you can restart it if people don't want to be permanently sterilized? Um, but it's also the case that, you know, they've run various clinical trials over the years. And at any point, there's sort of any side effects, then they do find sometimes men sort of throw up their hands and say, oh, I'm not interested in having any sort of risk of anything. Um, whereas, you know, women who are taking a pill, are taking on those kinds of risks every single day. So you get some of the snarky like, oh, well, we can't have men having any side effects, but it's okay for women. Um, so there's a whole lot that goes into the absence, the continuing absence of a male contraceptive pill. And for anybody uh, who's listening who wants to really dive into that, there's an amazing book by a historian named Nellie Uchorn um, called A Technology in the Making. Um, the male pill. And it's still a technology in the making. We still don't have one. It's, you know, July 7th, 2021. I guess earlier when the female pill was first being developed, we were dealing with side effects uh, in much higher rates than we are now, right? And so these things have been normalized. Rather than asking you about, um, you know, how did we get here straight away? Let me ask, in your research, have you uh, spoken with men or, or done surveys and sort of ask the question, you know, are, are men less interested in their health than women are? Or what, what, what's the status there? Do you have a feeling? Yeah, so it's, um, it's a question that I can't really answer with nationally representative data, which is how I should be able to answer that question. But again, we pay less attention to men's health and men's reproductive health in, in particular. So there's, you know, a lot of the national surveys um, on reproduction and family plans and reproductive plans, um, either still do or until very recently only surveyed women. Um, so there weren't actually, there's not actually like really great data. I did for the, for the purposes of writing this book, I did do interviews with about 40 men drawn from the general community about how they think about um, a man's role in reproduction, how they think about um, their own, you know, bodily involvement, how they think about their genetic involvement, how they how they think about sperm and eggs, how they think about being a dad. Um, so I have done qualitative interviews in which I did um, ask men sort of, you know, what what is it that you know about how men matter for reproduction? Um, and, you know, what if I told you that recent research reveals that a man's age and his bodily health and his health behaviors, smoking, drinking, drug use, and his toxic exposures, that all of these things prior to conception can actually damage sperm in such a way that it might affect the health of a man's ch children. Um, and so in doing interviews with 40 people drawn from the general public, so men from all walks of life, more educated, less educated, men who were fathers, men who were not, um, you know, in the United States, half of them were white, half of them were men of color, uh, various, you know, kind of international uh, backgrounds. Most men had never heard this information that their health um, prior to conception might affect the health of their children. And I was, you know, heartened and, you know, excited to see that they were actually quite interested in this information. They were like, why have I not heard this? I, you know, they would say things like, I can't remember any doctor ever talking to me about any aspect of reproductive health. And a lot of them said the last time they heard anything at all about their own reproductive systems was a high school health class. 
Right. So this, again, it sort of goes back to this issue of, you know, if you don't train physicians to think about men's reproductive health and they only do studies on women and they're not seeing men in the clinic anyway. And then, you know, men are sitting in a high school health class and literally, you know, that's literally the last time they hear anything about reproductive health. Um, then there's a whole lot of opportunity there to increase the level of knowledge and the level of education, um, because I did find that men were absolutely interested in hearing it. Do you think, so if you were going to look at so- solutions to the lack of information that men seem to have currently, would you want, you know, in, in your perfect world, a, a system that sort of mirrors what, what women have in the sense that, you know, now you have, you you might have men going in for yearly checkups, uh, not pap smears, but some something else, <laughs> and uh, maybe warnings on beer cans that say if you drink too much of this, maybe your sperm quality won't be so good. Is that the sort of direction that you'd want to push in, or uh, what are the limits to what you you would be interested in? Yeah, well, I think it's a really good question because one of the things that um, in writing the book, you know, so I I got to the conclusion of the book. And it was like, okay, well, now I've demonstrated the history of how we got here. And I've done my interviews with men about how they think about it. And then, okay, so now what? What do we do about it, right? Like, you could just remain in critique mode of let's not continue to do it this way we've done it, but to actually think proactively about what next. Um, And it's not an obvious answer to me. Um, And the reason is because the history of um, how we have issued messages around women's reproductive health is not a great history, you know, that's not really, I don't want to just take this sort of stress and anxiety that women feel about every bite they eat or every breath they take um, and just spread that around to the entire population. I think we can actually sort of use the newness of men's reproductive health as a moment to take a step back and say, okay, well, what is the goal here? Um, which is to improve the health of individual bodies um, that might be in a position to be reproducing so that children are healthier, right? So that's that's the goal. Um, and if that's the goal, then the first step is to, you know, increase the number of people who are aware that it's not just women and women's behaviors and women's bodies that affect reproductive outcomes, but also to include men and frankly, people of all gender identities, not just men and not just women, Um in sort of thinking about the health of their own bodies. But at the same time, we also have to really take on a long-standing argument in both public health and medical sociology that health is not just a matter of individual choices and individual behaviors. I can't just sit here and say, all right, great, I'm going to be healthy now and move forward with that, right? We live in societies that are set up um, to either be more likely to help produce healthy bodies or not. Um, And so I think making um, investments in, especially, you know, I'm speaking to you from the United States, where we still don't have a true national healthcare system. Um, We have just watched the pandemic ravage communities that have fewer economic resources and fewer educational resources and suffer from all kinds of uh, structural inequalities. So in that kind of context, you can't just sit there and say, oh, well, if people just made better individual choices, they'll be healthier and their kids will be healthier. We also have to think about the structural contributions to health outcomes um, and environmental contributions to health Mm -hmm. outcomes. So, So I would not just sort of take what we've done with women, which is the labels on beer bottles and the like, you know, kind of shaming finger wagging approach. But I would sort of say, okay, for all people's reproductive health, like, let's think anew about how we might actually best get to a place where we can um, make it more possible for people to live healthier lives. Mm -hmm. So talking about the structure that we're currently in, I should step back actually and, and ask you, you know, how did, what is, what is the path that we took to get into the current structure and, and sort of what, what is that structure more exactly? Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, kind of for me to, to sort of start the research project on, you know, men's reproductive health and why is there not more attention to it? Um, I felt the need to sort of get a sense of 
what had happened historically. Um, and so I'm very fortunate at Yale that there's a very strong medical history program here. And I went and started hanging out with the historians because I knew how to do qualitative interviews with people where I could ask them about things like sperm, but I had never, you know, gone to an archive or I didn't even know like where to start in terms of thinking about how did we get to this place where, you know, women's bodies are sort of perceived as reproductive and men's bodies are perceived as not reproductive. Um, and so the medical historians here were very kind and spent a lot of very patient time with me. Uh, and essentially what, it, what I ended up doing was I ended up looking at the late 19th century, which is the moment where the medical profession became a profession. So in the U.S., the American Medical Association was founded in 1847, 1848. Um, and within a couple decades, they start to specialize, right? So they say, oh, there's way too much knowledge out there. Not any one doctor can know it all. We have to focus, right? So you get early on, um, you get the ophthalmologists, the people who do the eyes were the first to break off and create a specialty because you really don't want to be messing around with the eyes unless you know what you're doing. Um, but, you know, soon after you get obstetrics and GYN, gynecology, two of the earliest um, specialties that were really sort of about taking knowledge about women's reproductive bodies, hiving it off from the rest of medicine and considering it a specialized form of knowledge. Um, and so that those sort of early decades of medical specialization are when the medical profession began to take on the basic shape that it continues to hold to this day. Um, and it's pretty fascinating, actually, if you look at medical specialization across countries, it doesn't quite play out in the same way in every place. So like if I were talking to you about medical specialization in Germany or in Italy or in, you know, the U.S., you know, these would all look slightly different. They kind of carve up the body in slightly different ways or understand the body in different ways, which is your number one signal. It's not just like biology telling us how to think about bodies. Um, so anyway, so you get OB and GYN very early on. And there was this moment that I was sort of the first person to really write about in any detail, which is that there was an attempt to launch a parallel specialty for men's reproductive bodies, parallel to GYN, um, that was called andrology. Mm -hmm. And this happens around 1890. Um, it's a total failure. They get laughed out of the pages of medical journals. People are like, why would you consider starting a specialty for men's reproductive bodies? This is ridiculous. But the biggest part of the problem was that what the main men's reproductive health issue of the time was um, venereal disease. So syphilis was epidemic, gonorrhea was epidemic, there weren't good treatments. And so this you know, very elite group of doctors in New York City was trying to specialize in um, men's sexually transmitted diseases, which were associated with immorality and quackery and all kinds of things. And so it's a total failure. It just it fails to launch. Um, and so I sort of argue that that was, you know, political scientists would call this a critical juncture. Um, the lack of a male specialty for reproductive health very early on in the early days of medical professional specialization reverberates sort of all the way through the 19th century or in 20th century to the present day where, you know, those that work on uh, contraceptive pills is an effect in part of OB and GYN being very established, very institutionalized. You have professional meetings, people can go and collaborate and make new knowledge, and then they build on it, right? So you've got the sort of looping effect of more and more attention to women and reproduction and women and reproduction, and a failure to attend to men and reproduction that sort of also, it's sort of a negative feedback loop as a way to think about it through the 20th century. I told you that was going to be a long answer because I get really, I'm like so excited about the history and like nobody <laughs> had gone to go look at this moment. So that's why I always sort of signal like I can answer that, but it's going to be a long answer. <laughs> but a good answer. So let me ask you then uh, a related question, actually, and this might also be a long answer. Um, and I might stumble over my words here a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I'm i curious how our cultural view of gender sort of wraps up into this story because, you know, culturally we're sort of a mix, you have sort of these traditional components to have views on gender. We also have, I guess, progressive and modern uh, components. And so, you know, on the one hand, just to give an example, you know, there, there might be this traditionalist view where men's health and lives in, in some restricted sense are viewed as cheap. You know, there's this uh, courage and sacrifice, uh, these values that are sort of tied up in traditional masculinity. But then on the other hand, you know, we from the modern and progressive view, 
you know, it might be confronting to talk about, uh, you know, men men having issues or, you know, because we view them as being in some place, in some hierarchy, let's say. Um, and so I guess my question is, does our cultural view of gender and all of its components in some sense create a situation where uh, it's difficult for us to view men as vulnerable and being mar- marginalized in even very specific ways uh, like this. And, and so maybe there's some aspect there that's sort of tying down or, or preventing, you know, what, what did you call it again? Andrology to, to explode into being? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, a, there's sort of a long tradition of research on gender and health, which I think is, is sort of helpful for thinking about, you know, the question that you're posing, which is, you know, what beliefs do we have about men um, and male bodies, more specifically, right? Um, and so there's a long tradition of sort of, you know, men being perceived and perceiving themselves as invulnerable. Um, so this is where you get, you know, the roots of things like only men could be soldiers, right? Like they're going to, they're both going to have the courage and the strength to go off and fight war or coal miners or construction worker, right? You can sort of think about various occupations that have been uh, stereotyped in terms of masculinity about being about sort of strength and invulnerability. And that absolutely plays out in the realm of health and medicine as well. Um, in part, you know, like I could give you an example from the world of infertility, where, you know, for a hundred and some years, there have been physicians who specialize in infertility. Um, they mostly treat and think about what's wrong with women's bodies that this couple can't, this heterosexual couple can't kind of get pregnant and have a child. Um, and so there are stories from, you know, a century ago where you would have a physician do an entire workup and try all these treatments and do all these things on the woman, um, only at the very end of it to then go do a basic sperm count on the man. Right. And I can tell you a story from a week ago or three weeks ago. Almost every time I give any sort of talk about this research, somebody comes up to me and says, you know what? You know, a woman who says I went all the way through, you know, X, Y or Z fertility treatment and they didn't even think to test my husband. And then they did. And he has no sperm. Right. So this is this kind of which is horrible. That's that's really damaging for her. That's horrible for her. Right. Physically, you know, economically like these. So but part of this is it illustrates the the deep associations of our thinking about sort of where, you know, when we're thinking about reproduction, we're almost always thinking in terms of women's bodies. And when we're thinking about men's bodies, most of the time, um, if I say men in reproduction, most of the time people are going to say sperm. Right. And then the questions about sperm, even when they are asked, are super narrow. So, again, mm-hmm. for 100 years, scientists and clinicians have known that sperm, um, it matters the number of sperm mm-hmm. and can they swim and do they have a proper shape. Right. So mm-hmm. um, number, you know, count, motility and morphology in the mm-hmm. technical version of that. Uh, but. You know, the sort of newer science of paternal effects is in just in the last couple decades saying, all right, it's not just about count or swimming or shape. It's also about the genetics inside the sperm. Mm-hmm. But the, the, for so long, the belief was, well, if a sperm can fertilize an egg, then it's got to be fine. Right. And so if you could get a doctor to actually do a sperm count, then at least they were doing the sperm count. But there's a whole other set of questions about sperm that we are just starting to scratch the surface of. Um, and that's where, you know, one of the things that I focus on in the book is sort of this newer emerging science of paternal effects that ties in with things like epigenetics. And so it's not just the strand of DNA, but what turns it on and off and environmental exposures. And this is all, you know, extremely emergent, very unsettled, like it's impossible to give anybody like, here's your individualized risk number. But what I'm saying uh, in the book, and and what I'm saying as I sort of speak about this um, to various audiences, is that at least we need to be asking the question, we need to be thinking about men's health as potentially significant and going to do some of the basic research so we have better information to give people. 
it's sad that we have to think of it as potentially being significant. That's a very basic step to... Can I... So what's your view then on these recent reports that, um, you know, male sperm counts are dropping and the fertility is... Do, do you have like a view of where that research actually sits and what can be definitively said? Yeah, so this is, you know, one of these issues that if when you look historically <laughs> at sperm, you see that, you know, every five or 10 years, there's some big new study, um, sperm counts are dropping, there's, you know, headlines in the national newspapers, and everybody sort of scrambles. So the latest example of this happened in the last six months or so. Um, there's a new book out, and it's basically based on a meta-analysis of data from multiple studies of sperm done over 40 or 50 years. Um, and again, the, the, the headline is both from the book and the actual headlines that sperm count is dropping so rapidly that, you know, humans might be running extinct in, by 2045. Like, it's ridiculous, right? Um, so, what I think, well, let me say, let me, I will back up. And I, it's ridiculous to think <laughs> that we are not going to be able to continue reproducing as a species. But um, it is absolutely the case that toxic chemicals in the environment have all kinds of health effects for all kinds of species, including humans. I have zero doubt that it is affecting sperm in some way. Um, but the question again, and it's a really important you know, nitty gritty basic science sort of question is, okay, well, how are the chemicals affecting sperm and in what way, right? There's not a straightforward relationship between X number of chemicals, um, X effect on sperm, X effect on fertility, X effect on children's health. Each of those is, and I'm sure that there's a number of even more specific questions within each of those stages. But to move from, which some of the scientific literature does, a question of sperm counts to a, a, a conclusion about male fertility is a very simplistic step. And so that's what a lot of the people who sort of push back on that, every time these headlines appear, there's always less exciting stories, you know, a couple of weeks later of like, well, the data don't really say that and it's much more complicated, but that doesn't generate the headlines in the same way. Um, but it's very difficult, first of all, to know what an average sperm count was in 1950 mm -hmm. or 1980 or 2020, because we don't have any population level um, surveillance programs, you know, testing men's sperm. So you're always relying on whatever samples exist which tend to either be from sperm banks or fertility clinics, right? So mm -hmm. sperm banks are recruiting super fertile men and infertility clinics are potentially treating infertile men. Um, and so there's always an effort to kind of calibrate. So there's no population level data to actually draw good conclusions from. And then the other thing about sperm that's so fascinating is it fluctuates, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So mm -hmm. my first book um, was actually on sperm banks and egg agencies. And one of the things that I learned that most people don't know is that, you know, a man, like even a man who has been selected for highly, you know, a sperm with very high sperm count, uh, a 21-year-old guy who's in college and drinks a lot of beer the night before will go in and it totally decimates his sperm count. Mm -hmm. Or he's taking finals or he sits down in a hot tub, right? So any of those things, sperm is constantly replenishing, but it takes about two and a half months to grow in the body. So... Mm -hmm. Given that, like, we've got these one point in time from biased samples over a number of decades, like, there's just not, we don't, it's hard to know for sure what's happening with sperm counts. But even if we knew what was happening with sperm counts, the relationship between sperm count and a man's ability to fertilize an egg is not a one-to-one -one relationship. So mm -hmm. to have not great data and then not great an understanding of that relationship between sperm count and fertility, that's why you see so many people saying, okay, well, you know, I'm not kind of running around like waiting for the world to end because the data just isn't great yet. What, what about if you compare fertility clinics in, say, the 70s to fertility clinics now where they had – did they have, have standardized procedures that lasted from then until now for selecting these ultra-fertile men or this, even that you can't do? Well, I mean, most of the cases, the fertility clinics aren't going to be storing the sperm. So usually they're running a sperm count on a man's sample and then tossing it out. 
And so the other, the other <laughs> complication here, and it's so funny, you get into sperm and then you're like, okay, now I'm swimming around in like a sea of like sperm complexities. Um, the other thing is that even the procedures for how you count how many sperm are in a sample have changed. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually quite a science itself. And so if you have somebody who is, you know, kind of a basic technician doing a quick count in 1972 for X man that's going to go into this sample of data, um, and they're not well trained or they don't do it often, um, then they're not going to get a very good count. And now there are, now there's machines that count, but sometimes they're not as good as, as clinicians who have been doing this for a really long time. So even the, the act of figuring out what is that number is not a super straightforward one. Mm. Then I guess, uh, I suppose now that this has been noticed as potentially a thing, I guess now over the coming years, we're going to get, we're going to be able to extrapolate better, uh, if this is actually a thing. But, uh, yeah, well, they would, I mean, they would have to actually start doing some sort of random sample of a population in order to generate what is an average sperm count over time. And then look at that in different places and times, because, um, there's all kinds of, uh, so, um, uh, you know, in general, a man's sperm health is related to his bodily health. And if you have massive health inequalities in any given population, um, that's also going to affect whose sperm you want to test and to what end, right? Like what, you know, again, thinking about like what's actually the goal here. Mm-hmm. So just uh, a very simple question. Do you know what percentage of infertility issues are due to the man? So the general breakdown that you hear again, and it's an estimate that I'm not sure how rooted in empirical data it is, but usually about a third of infertility cases are, um, they call them female factor, a third are male factor, and a third are unknown. So in a third of cases, you know, you can go through all the testing and it's not clear why you're not getting pregnant, but it just, um, it's not working for whatever reason. But it's usually considered a third women, a third men, a third unknown. Mm -hmm. Which makes me believe then it's probably 50-50, you know. Yeah. Probably. You know, if you do the same breakup on the unknown sample. <laughs> yeah. um, so th- then, so what are the impacts of the man's health on, fr- so, okay, there's this quality of sperm. So what, what are the impacts of the, the father's health on, you know, uh, miscarriages and the child's health? And maybe even, you know, can, can, the, the, can bad sperm also have negative health impacts on the mother as she's carrying the child? Like, do, do, is there any, is research done along uh, these lines or...? Yeah. So in one of the things that I did in the book was to really try to go look at what is the scientific evidence base for um, how men's own health and exposures can affect their children's health. And so I worked with a graduate student research assistant, and we basically did, um, you know, not a formal meta-analysis, but we did a scientific literature review from about 1970 to 2015. Um, And it turns out that some of the strongest evidence was really about paternal age. Um, Mm -hmm. So as a man gets older, he's more likely, even though sperm is constantly being, you know, generated, um, the sperm is more likely to have what are called de novo mutations or new mutations that arise. And those mutations appear to be associated with things like autism and schizophrenia in their offspring. So paternal age as a potential factor for men to consider in terms of um, their own sort of bodily health and the health of their children. Another really sort of strong evidence, um, a strong base of evidence was about paternal smoking. So Mm -hmm. for about 10 years, um, epidemiologists have been saying, you know, men who spoke should be counseled to quit if they're thinking about conceiving a child, because there are germline mutations in the DNA that look to be associated with an increased risk of cancer for their children, right? So genetic changes happening in sperm that can affect a child's risk for cancer. Um, so you've got paternal age, paternal smoking, and then I would say that there's sort of less clear evidence on uh, paternal drinking, um, it's sort of different studies should either show it's a problem or not. Um, 
And drug use, there hasn't been a whole lot of studies of drug use because it's illegal and you can't randomly, you know, you can't run experiments on these things. People um, lie. Yeah. Right. And people lie. And then you've got things like BMI and diet and exercise, which are also very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a whole body of literature on environmental contaminants and the effects on sperm, both environmental contaminants in the workplace, in the home. So things like pesticides, paints with heavy metal. Um, dentists who work with laughing gas, you know, there's all kinds of individual studies. And uh, environmental epidemiologists will say it's just very difficult to to get really good data because it's hard to um, control for the person and the dose and the outcome. Because we're all constantly being exposed to all kinds of things. So how do you know that it's that one thing that caused this Mm -hmm. particular change in the sperm that led to this outcome for children? Um, So there is good data from like mouse studies that environmental contaminants matter. But then again, you go from mice to men. um, And that brings its whole set of complexities with it in terms of thinking about how do you extrapolate and and what what levels of, of toxins are we concerned about? I can't remember your original question, but the answer is that there's <laughs> there's a lot of different ways people have thought about um, how men's health matters for their children. And there's there's sort of places where the evidence is stronger than others. But in my view, the whole of the the studies really sort of points to the need to do more research and to really kind of mm-hmm. drill down mm-hmm. on, all right, you know, if paternal age is an issue or paternal smoking is an issue, why why aren't we informing men of those risks? I suppose one of the reasons why paternal age might also be a primary factor is that you're integrating all of these other problems over a longer period of time. Uh, so I, I want to ask about some uh, other unrelated uh, health uh, issues that sort of men face. And uh, one, one thing I was just curious to get your opinion on is uh, has to do with um, sort of body issues and, and eating disorders. Because, you know, we usually view these as being... Uh, I suppose, a women's issue or something that affects women more. But, but on the other hand, you know, if, if we think about things a little bit differently, there are men who are taking supplements and going on eating regimes to grow their muscles large or they're injecting themselves with all sorts of chemicals or they're, um, they're taking pills to grow back their hair or to grow other things, on, uh, you know, part of the, parts of their bodies. And, you know, so do we have some... Is there, is there research that's comparable to what's done in the direction of women's body issues and eating disorders, which gives us some indication of how widespread these uh, these issues are for men? And, you know, then follow up question, what the impact that might have on, you know, reproduction, for example? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. So I haven't ever done um, sort of a deep dive into the literature on men and eating disorders. Um, but I think that the the way that I would sort of approach that question is to think about, again, kind of the, the general understandings of masculinity in our culture and sort of the way that we think about what it means to be a man and definitions of manhood, and those are always just not only about gender, but also intersect with race and class and sexuality. So I say masculinity, but masculinity has built into it sort of these intersecting mm-hmm. social processes around people's gender identity, their sexuality, their race, their class, etc., And you can think about masculinity, you know, in terms of as sort of to kind of follow along the lines of your question, you can think about how uh, beliefs in masculinity and masculinity norms affect how individual men think about themselves and their bodies and what their bodies should look like and what they're willing to do to try to to attain that norm, right? So you could sort of think about it on an individual level. You could think about it um, sort of on a more institutional level. How is the medical profession defined um, the male body and what a masculine body looks like? And what is a physician going to talk to his male patients about um, or not talk to them about? So masculinity plays a role in sort of physician and clinician training, but also in doctor-patient interactions. And then you've got the whole sort of world of um, cultural objects and, you know, popular media and movies and books. And um, I'm just trying to think, you know, the whole world of like YouTube and Instagram that I have like not ventured into, but I know it exists, you know, but there's all kinds of sort of ways that masculinity floats around popular culture and shapes 
um, the portrayals of, of men's bodies. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I can't say off the top of my head what proportion of men sort of either, you know, are regulating their eating in a way to try to attain that norm and or taking, um, see here's that and again, is it and or taking these like, you know, supplements or drugs, um, you know, engaging in sort of various chemical adjustments to their body. Um, but absolutely, those, you know, some of those um, medications uh, and some of those, you know, sort of approaches to, to managing one's body could affect your health and could affect sperm health as a result. Um, and in fact, there has been some research in particular on steroids and the relationship between the use of steroids and later infertility. Um, and I can't remember exactly what the risks were, but there was, you know, there were people sort of looking into that possibility. And so that's where, you know, sort of an interest in attaining some sort of masculine norm actually ends up, you know, rendering men unable to have children. So these, mm -hmm. these are not just, you know, to say that these are social processes or cultural beliefs is not to say that they don't matter or don't have really significant um, consequences for people in their everyday lives. And consequences that may come many years down the line. You know, you may want to build muscle to attract women or whatever, whatever your goal is. Then in the end, you can't have children. It, and I, I, this is actually one of the entry points how I became sort of interested in, in this specific issue because I know people who have fishing tackle boxes filled with pills, you know, mm -hmm. for every day of the week and they, they go to the gym and, you know, Monday is these three, three pills and, you know, I asked them, where did you get them from? And they're all imported. They're all, you know, God knows where they found out about about them and what they're going to be doing ultimately to their bodies. It, it sort of scares me uh, a little bit. But the, so the, another question along these lines um, is, you know, men, it's sort of accepted that men die younger. And um, so what I want to understand is, is there some sort of idea of whether this is, you know, natural and unavoidable or, or are there, you know, problems with, structurally with the way that we treat uh, men's health that sort of lead to less than perfect outcomes for men's longevity? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is like the sociology bumper sticker is like, it's complicated and it's all the things. Um, so it's, it's, it's both of those and other things as well. So it, it's considered, uh, sort of those of us who study sociology of health and medicine, think about this as the gender paradox. So in general, uh, gender inequality runs against women, but when it comes to longevity or the number of healthy days lived or healthy you know, years lived, uh, women do better than men. So mm -hmm. women live longer. Um, there is some evidence that shows that women are more likely to have more disability days than men, but in part they think that's because men die younger. Um, and men die younger because they don't go to the doctor when they're having some sort of condition. So they don't actually mm -hmm. seek medical treatment. Um, they uh, are more likely to die younger because of accidents, including with mm -hmm. things like firearms and suicide, uh, workplace accidents. Um, so it's when, you know, you look at the longevity number that both includes people sort of who die at 65 instead of 70, but also it factors in, you know, people mm -hmm. dying at 20 or 25 or 30. Right. Um, and so the, the idea that men die younger than women, um, comes back to, you know, these, this, these issues of sort of thinking of men as invulnerable and not attending to some of the things that tend to, make them sick and even kill them, um, such as, you know, kind of the widespread and commonplace use of various supplements, right? Like this is, you know, if people think of themselves as invulnerable and they don't have clinicians or public health campaigns saying, think about all the things that you're doing to your body on a daily basis and how those things might add up, right? Because we just, it doesn't kind of compute that we need to be worried about men's health in these ways. Um, then I think that there's both that sort of inattention um, combined with sort of the the parts of masculinity that are about sort of taking risks and, um, you know, not seeking help when you need help and not ever sort of thinking about oneself as vulnerable and in need of, of whatever. Um, so I think all of those things really do come together, um, potentially with some sort of biological mechanisms um, around, you know, could be... Um, 
around hormones or just different kind of bodily processes um, that are happening in male bodies that aren't necessarily happening in female bodies or as often in female bodies. Um, but I do want to just, I just want to put a footnote on the thing that I just said, um, which is that I would be very remiss if we get all the way through this conversation um, and not sort of say something about this terminology that I'm using of, mm-hmm. you know, men's reproductive health or women's reproductive health as if, um, men and women are two clearly defined you know, species, opposite categories, <laughs> right? That we've got two sex categories and people fit neatly into one or the other. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book and that I've been doing a lot of thinking about more recently is, you know, our, again, we have a cultural belief in sex as a binary, as, you know, mm-hmm. people are one or the other. And that is, um, it's just becoming increasingly, um, important to think about and talk about and pay attention to all the ways that bodies don't fit into one of those two categories. And so here I'm thinking about people who are transgender, who maybe were assigned one of these categories at birth, but now identify as either a different category as or as, as non-binary, as not part of the gender binary. People who are born intersex, um, you know, people whose sort of chromosomes and genitals, uh, hormone levels, whatever, don't align with our neat and tidy understandings of male and female. Um, so even as I say men's reproductive health or male bodies or biology of men, you know, like at, at every single one of these points, we also have to be aware of and pay attention to the fact that the binary itself has been constructed over very long periods of time is entrenched in all kinds of ways of biological knowledge making, is entrenched even in our way of speaking, that I find it very difficult, even though I'm aware of it, to not go ahead and use those terms. Um, so I just want to sort of mention that and, you know, happy to, to talk in more detail about it. But I think, you know, it's important to sort of both point out the inattention to men's reproductive health, but also question even that category of men at the same time. Right. Do you, do you think, so this is, okay, this is, now again, this is completely outside of my area of expertise. Yeah. Uh, with people who who do research on gender like rather than talking about a binary does it make more sense to talk about sort of like a bimodal distribution uh, which is strongly bimodal or like because i don't know what the actual numbers are what what, what's is that a more helpful way of viewing things or, or would you say not You know, I think this is just a wide open question right now. And I think really it comes down to um, to what end. Right. So if we're thinking about cultural definitions of women and men, like what makes a woman and what makes a man, um, part of that answer, you know, if I were talking to an individual person asking about their own gender identity, you know, you could you could find things on any sort of spectrum or off the spectrum or combination. So you get, you know, you get metaphors like gender fluidity or gender as a spectrum um, or gender queer or non-binary, right? So some people sort of, instead of having two categories, they'll put male and female at two ends of a spectrum and then they'll mm-hmm. move along a line. And then there's right. people who just reject the line and reject the spectrum altogether, right? right. Um, and so that's if we're sort of thinking about like gender, like individuals' identities and how they think of themselves and what masculinity is or what femininity is. Um, and I'm very, you know, like as a as a scholar, you know, sociologist of gender, that that makes a lot of sense to me for when it comes to sort of individuals' understandings of their own selves and their own bodies. Um, the question, which I think your your question about sort of bimodal distribution, is sort of more about like, you know, is there any place we can go look in the body or in biology to actually find something that is, you know, male and female sex? Um, and, you know, I think that certainly we all have material bodies, um, but they have been categorized in certain ways and knowledge has been produced about them as male or female. Um, so hormones are a great example, right? Hormone, testosterone, estrogen, in the early days of hormone research in the 1930s, the assumption was that they were going to go find the sort of essence of femininity in the ovaries, and they would pull out the ovaries and look at, you know, and they thought they were going to find, and then they find estrogen. Um, and a couple of years later, they find testosterone. But then they found that both men and women have both estrogen and testosterone, Right. And so then the hormone story is just vastly more complicated than women have estrogen and men have testosterone. But we still think of them as sex hormones 
And we still assess even though like everybody has both. Um, or most people have both, right? I'm not going to say everybody because it's almost always you can't say <laughs> 100% of the time. Um, so hormones are far more complicated. Uh, chromosomes are hugely complicated, right? So we think of the X as female and the Y as male. But people we have identified as men usually have an X and a Y, right? So how to think about that? And that's, you know, for people who are interested in that, there's a historian at Harvard named Sarah Richardson who wrote a book called Sex Itself about how the X and the Y became the male and female chromosome. So that is a process that happened over time. So, you know, I, I understand the impulse to say, you know, all right, if we're looking at human bodies and we're going to kind of categorize them in various ways, there's been a longstanding effort to categorize people by race. And, you know, whether we're talking about skull shape or in the genes, you know, over the centuries, there have been so many attempts to go find race in the body with the hopes that it will be real, right? That it's really there somewhere. And those always fail. Um, and I think we're at a, a, a kind of similar moment with sex and gender where, you know, people have just assumed for so long that there are these two categories and then you go and make knowledge about them. So they seem very real. And people are sort of kind of taking a step back and starting to ask questions about like, okay, well, what is the biological basis, if any, for these two categories that we have? Um, so I don't have a definitive answer for you, but that's in part because like it is an open debate and an open question among um, scholars and scientists who are interested in these questions right now. So bearing that in mind, uh, just to use words that will get us through the conversation. I'm going <laughs> to, yes. I'm going to still use the categories. Um, can I jump back? Uh, and I don't mean any insult to anyone by doing that, but can, can I jump back, um, just a little bit because you mentioned that. So when we're looking at the life expectancy of men, uh, that's what I mean by using, um, so if we were to factor out, for example, everyone underneath the age of 35, and then look at uh, you know life expectancy of those populations. Do, does that gap close significantly? What, what's what's the story there then? The gap you know? between men and women. Uh, yeah, yeah. That is a good question. I have not looked at the data in that way, but I would suspect. So my suspicion is that if a man is going to make it to 30, somebody who identifies as men, who has a body <laughs> that we have historically identified as having male characteristics, um, you know, if you if you have a man who's made it to 35 or 40 or 45, then they've probably moved out of the sort of youngest, riskiest taking kind of behaviors of being in their teens and 20s. Um, it might be at that point that the biggest um, divergence is actually between um, people who are identified as white versus uh, people of color, racial minorities. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just thinking of some of the, the data about life expectancy, especially in the United States, where we have, like I said, so many different inequalities operating. Um, there's, you know, life expectancy differences upwards of 10 or 15 or 20 years between whites and people of color. So it may be that once you get past 40, it's less about gender and more about race. Um, mm -hmm. and sort of economic and educational resources. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's something I'm really interested in knowing. Like now that I've gotten to a certain age, yeah. like <laughs> how does my, <laughs> if I go to the doctor, how does my, and so on. But um, okay, so in terms of the impact in more broad terms, so, so we've spoken a little bit about the impact on individual people, but at the level of sort of government policy or, uh, you know, research funding or clinical outcomes, you know, uh, what, what's the impact of this lack of attention to men, men's uh, reproductive health and health in general? Yeah. So this is, again, the, in the conclusion of the book, I sort of spend quite a lot of time kind of talking to a couple of different audiences. So one of them being biomedical researchers, um, to whom I say, please do more research <laughs> about men's reproductive health and think about reproductive health, not just in terms of male bodies, but in terms of um, all bodies. And, you know, how do we start to ask questions about reproductive outcomes that don't automatically assume sort of gender, um, don't automatically assume women, and don't automatically assume gender? Um, healthcare providers, 
have an opportunity to be raising this issue of how men's health matters for their children's health with um, their patients, especially those who are thinking about having children. Um, high school teachers could plop this into the high school curriculum so that if the last thing men ever hear about the reproductive system is in high school, they could at least hear that they, you know, their health is not only affecting their lives, but potentially their children's lives. Um, so those are all sort of educational kind of, you know, in public health campaigns, right? The public health campaigns we have around reproductive health are all geared towards women. That could be expanded to think about the reproductive health of all bodies. Um, so there's a real sort of push to think about kind of basic education, that this is a thing that exists and it matters. Um, and I think potentially it has kind of ripple effects more broadly for reproductive politics um, and gender politics. So in the U.S., you know, we have really, really sort of cantankerous, deeply conflictual, um, you know, lots of efforts to try to control women's reproductive lives in various ways by state legislators, national legislators, um, various sorts of, of entities. And I think, you know, if we can sort of tweak how we think about reproduction as not just being about women, my hope is that we could sort of kind of think in different ways about these reproductive politics as being not just women's business, not just women's responsibility, but in fact, you know, involving relationships, um, including with men and with uh, entire families and communities and to think in sort of much more expansive and hopefully um, health producing ways for the entire population um, and not just sort of drop this at women's feet. So so when I think really big, that that's that's where I go in terms of thinking about how can we think about health differently um, for the entire population and how can we sort of can really kind of stop thinking about reproduction as something that is just, you know, happening inside women's bodies. Mm -hmm. So so is something happening now? Uh, you know, are, are things starting to change? Are people starting to take notice uh, of, of th these issues? Or, or is this something that you're really banging your head against? Well, you know, it's a... It's hard for me to tell, I think in part because, you know, I, in a normal time, you know, when you publish a book, you go out and you give talks and you interact with people and you sit over dinner and you say, okay, you know, so it's hard, it's hard to tell, um, you know, from my little corner of the world where I'm certainly sitting here saying like sperm matters and men's health matters. Um, but and I've also been writing about sperm for a really long time. So there's moments that I get sort of, you know, kind of optimistic that at least like, you know, people are sort of starting to think and talk about this. There's more scientists, frankly, who are doing research now than even 10 years ago on these issues. Um, I'll hear little things about like, oh, there's an NIH panel grouping on this, or there's going to be a call for proposals on this, or you know, I've been talking with a couple of different nonprofits who focus on male contraception or whatever. Like, so it seems like there is, you know, a, maybe a little bit of traction. But also in those conversations, I hear from those people who also care about this, that it's hard for them to get their colleagues to listen or it's hard to find mm -hmm. funding. Um, so I think, you know, this is definitely, you know, not over by any means. It's it's one of those things that if I can do a little bit of work to sort of call a little bit more attention to it, I will have felt like that will be a, a success. Um, but mm -hmm. I don't have any illusions that like I'm going to, you know, wave a wand and tomorrow we will all suddenly care and think about reproductive health in very different ways. But um, but that's probably the the story of all kinds of uh, progress in terms of making new knowledge, whether it's physics or sociology or mm -hmm. uh, health and medicine that, you know, we're all sort of kind of working incrementally to try to make things a little bit better um, and hopefully not to make them any worse. Um, but to try to figure out like what it is that we can say from the place where we are are able to speak. Mm -hmm. I want to ask uh, a couple of questions that are a bit more controversial. But before doing that, I might leave them till the very end. Okay. But before, so before before doing that, let me ask you something that's a little bit out of left field. Well, I probably um, I probably have like five more minutes, so we should ask. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Then, then let me let me just ask you something uh, a bit out of left field. Okay. Then, um, so you know, when the female pill uh, came online, let's say, you know, it it gave women you know freedom and control over their reproduction, right? It, it gave them control of their, their sexuality in new and interesting ways that had never been the case before in human history, I suppose, and. So what I am curious about, let's imagine that tomorrow a male pill comes in. 
what are the impacts in, in your what do you think the impacts will be on you know men's participation in pregnancy in society you know gender roles generally fatherhood um the politics of sex so for example how cheap does sperm become or how expensive does it become if all the men are now uh on the contraceptive pill and you know these questions of supply and demand so this is a big question and hopefully you can wrap it up in <laughs> five minutes but uh yeah, it's a really interesting question. So because I did not focus in like on male contraception in this book, um, although interestingly, the book is leading me to have many conversations about male contraception. And so now I've been reading more about it. But I don't I don't have a great answer to your it's I, I completely agree with you that it's interesting to sort of think about what the follow on effects might be. Um, but I don't have a great question because I haven't done the deep dive into some, there are some interview studies with men about, you know, would they be interested in taking a male pill if it existed and how would it change what they're thinking about? Um, but, you know, so I'll answer it by taking a step back and saying for people in sociology and history who study technology, um, there is almost always a tendency to sort of focus on technological change as the specific thing that is going to matter. But anytime you get any sort of technological change, it's nested within all kinds of pre-existing social processes around gender and the healthcare system and norms of masculinity and whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So do I think that if there was a male contraceptive pill available tomorrow, that it would potentially shift all kinds of things, like probably, but I don't ever, I don't think that it would necessarily revolutionize all the other stuff, the healthcare mm -hmm. stuff and the masculinity norms and, you know, the gender politics. Um, so I guess that's, you know, a little bit of a cop out, but that's, that's the way I would begin to think about that question, if not an actual answer. <laughs> I mean, because the, this has been a huge impact for also uh, sanitation technology. You know, there are these technologies that really came in and revolutionized things for women. I'm, I, this is one thing that I can imagine re might have a re revolutionary effect for men. I, I can't think of too many other technologies that might come in that are uh, like that. But um, yeah, may I ask just one other quick question about, so just... Generally speaking, um, so this is a little bit more controversial, but so do you think there are aspects of gender discourse that are just going to necessarily bump heads? So so to give an example, um, a large part of the abortion debate, for example, is my body, my choice. And so a large part of the discussion that we've been having has been, has been you know, what's our view of how men contribute to to fatherhood or to parenthood and and you know are there aspects of these uh, of this discourse that may be you know very useful in some ways but may we may actually have to think about uh being a bit more careful with uh, as as we move forward and we we develop empathy for uh, in different ways for different you know, elements of the population, however you want to describe the, the distribution of how people lie on the gender and, and, and sex line or, or landscape. Um, yeah, I, I suppose that, that's the question. Are we, is it inevitable that we're going to bump heads as we start thinking uh, more solidly about different aspects of our population? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. I don't find it to be controversial. Um, and maybe I'm not totally getting your meaning if it's if I'm not thinking it's controversial. But I well, I'm trying to step as lightly as possible because <laughs> yes. Well, so the the I, the again a little bit of um, sort of historical context here is that you know the the reproductive rights movement in the 1970s really did use this language of choice and individual rights. And it was primarily a white women's movement about access to contraception and abortion. And I would say in the last two decades, there's been a real shift um, in the what would have been the reproductive rights movement um, to sort of a, a discourse around moving from choice to justice. So thinking about reproductive justice instead of reproductive choice. 
And part of that shift in language, um, which is being sort of pushed by women of color organizations like Sister Song, is to really say, you know, this isn't just all about individual choices and individual decisions. And we need to not only be thinking about contraception and abortion, but thinking about access to all kinds of reproductive health care. So I think that that reproductive justice model and framework um, is entirely compatible with thinking about men's reproductive health. And, you know, and what does reproductive justice look like for men? Um, And it could be that, you know, for men um, to have knowledge and information and access to resources to make decisions about their own contraception um, and their own reproductive lives. But I don't think, you know, I think the sort of battle of the sexes model where like every gain for men is a loss for women and vice versa. You know, I think we just live in a much more um, related, you know, compatible uh, world than that. And I see actually focus, you know, I'm a, I'm a feminist sociologist who has just spent 20 years talking about sperm. Like, that's not where I expected to go with my career. But it makes a lot of sense to me to think about how men's lives have been just as shaped and influenced and constrained by gender politics as women's lives have, and calling attention to that and thinking through that. And what is it that we know and don't know about men because of how we understand men and women to be related categories. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't anticipate it being, I mean, I'm, there are certainly people who could take it in that direction, right? Like there's already people who would like to control women's reproductive bodies, right? So those people are going to continue to make that argument, but I don't think it's um, necessarily correlated to an increased focus on men's reproductive health. I think you can think about that in very expansive you know, non-individual choice-based ways that really does open up a broader conception and brings us back to that issue of, you know, the public health and not just uh, individual health. Escaped sapiens, 